Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings and welcome to the December episode. I'm the magazine's editor, Chris Bramley, and I'm joined in the studio today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. And production editor Dave Golder. Hi there. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Richard McKim from the British Astronomical Association about how your back garden Mars observations are used by scientists studying the red planet. And we'll be telling you our top tip for stargazing this month. But first, in the December magazine, we're looking ahead to the top events uh, taking place in the night sky next year. So we thought here we'd do something a little bit different and look back over the last 12 months. Mm, Yeah. Ian, what's one thing that's stuck with you from 2018? Well, it's, I mean, the, the, to, for me, the kind of the two biggest stories happened in the past few months, really. Um, it was kind of the, the end of the Kepler and the Dawn missions. Um, two, 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 two very di- different missions. Um, the, the Kepler Space Telescope was launched in 2009 and has kind of been studying um, uh, stars, looking for dips in light that could indicate... Um, uh, exoplanets, uh, mm. other planets beyond our solar system. And it, it came to an end this year. Um, and the Dawn mission um, was kind of uh, surveying the asteroid belt, looking at um, the two largest bodies in the asteroid belt, uh, Ceres and Vesta, and kind of um, beaming back data. As I suppose kind of that kind of way, it's kind of part of that wave of post-Voyager space exploration, you know, that kind of Cassini was mm. part of as well. But um, Kepler, I mean, like when when, when you kind of, Look at how it changed our view of the of the um, of the universe. I suppose um, 
one of the kind of biggest uh, discoveries it made was that for every star we see in the night sky, there is on average um, a, a planet in orbit around it. It's um, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. When the three of us were, were were at school, you know, we learned about nine planets. There were nine planets, yeah. and then they dropped one, and there were only eight. But now there are like um, I think like Kepler's um, discovered over. 2,600, I think, um, exo- exoplanets. It's mm. amazing, isn't it? It's, like, <laughs> it's really kind of, it's been a step change in how we, what we know about the, about, you know, the galaxy and um, about the abundance of planets. It's really kind of epochal, isn't it? This understanding that we have now. Yeah, definitely. And I think kind of one of the really big um, things to take from it is, we assumed, well, I say we, you know, I haven't really done, I haven't done much kind of play for planetary science, but, uh, but planetary scientists, I mean, up until the, the, the discovery of these, all these other systems around other stars, we only had our own solar system as a, as a point of reference. So it was assumed, you know, that you had to, you had to kind of take it that. So around a star, you have the inner planets are small and rocky and then the massive gas. Giants mm. are further out, but now we know about hot Jupiters, mm. which are big planets that are bigger and more massive than Jupiter, but orbit really close to their stars, so they're absolutely scorching. So that's another thing. It kind of showed us how, so like, planets orbiting other stars isn't necessarily um, well, that. that our, you, our system isn't the only system. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's, there can be other ways that the galaxy can sort itself out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I think one of, the, one of the other kind of reasons that Kepler was so, is so important is the fact that it's provided a, a, a database for kind of future missions mm-hmm. to, to to look at um, uh, up close, like TESS. Uh, the uh, TESS Exoplanet Survey is, is already kind of currently uh, beaming back uh, information. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, uh, JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, among other things, is going to be looking at um, exoplanets. And there's a few European missions coming up. Why, why was Kepler retired? Did it just run out of steam or break down or, or they just got fed up with only detecting gas giants? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's it, really. I mean, because in, in uh, K, the current mission was called K2 because uh, in 2013 it was announced that it wasn't going to continue looking for planets using the transit method because um, there were, like, uh, basically problems with the hardware. It was like it, it, issues with two, two of its four reaction wheels failed, um, and uh, so then they had to kind of do, do the K two mission, which was a follow up. So I think I think it's kind of just re- really re- reached the end of its life. Whereas whereas the Dawn mission has actually kind of uh, run out of fuel, and it was a uh, it was a, a spacecraft that was um, launched eleven years ago to study Ceres and Vesta, as we've said, the, the uh, two largest um, bodies in the uh, asteroid belt. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, again, just just like Cassini, just like Juno, it's kind of brought back these amazing images of our of our solar system. And um, one, I suppose, kind of the most iconic thing that I think the most iconic image, I suppose, was the um, the bright spots in the Equator crater in Ceres, which they yes. think might be like salt deposits. Yeah. Um, and it's also found at cryovolcanoes. Um, it also found on on Vesta. It found. Uh, uh, mountains like um, a, a mountain like Mount, Ever- Mount Everest, and uh, crazy that on, on Vesta is such a small body, isn't it? But it's got so amazing kind of topography. Exactly, just, just uh, you know, kind of hard to get your head around, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. then the possibility that there might, there might have been once been a, an ocean on Ceres, you know. So it's not just yeah. icy moons and rocky planets. You know, dwarf planets could have moons as well. But it's very interesting, isn't it? That all this kind of, um, like you said, the kind of post Voyager. Um, survey of the solar system. Um, it's very interesting that that, that kind of we've, we're doing that. You know, we've now visited every planet in the solar system, and we've done a kind of I- initial 
science survey. We know what's there. Uh, and now we're getting a bit more information about all these bodies. But I think uh, with asteroids, it's particularly um, interesting because uh, that is like our our kind of stepping stones to um, becoming a planetary society, as it were, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. For, you know, um, they're all these kind of, they're the linchpin of the space economy where we're going to get all the raw material to kind of um, make the oxygen yeah. and the rocket fuel to kind of forge further ahead into the solar system. <laughs> so yeah. um, it's quite a, it's quite a, it's quite an interesting first step in that exploration. Well, thanks, Ian. And Dave, what, what do you remember most from, uh, well, from 2018 then? I remember the start of the year, it was just getting excited about how, how many days we could go without a sunspot. I remember getting obsessed with that for some bizarre reason. Um, but, but, but apart from that, uh, it, it's the fact that like Britain is now back in the space race. Um, the space egg and spoon race, probably. But uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think I don't think we're going to be like launching like massive NASA style, um, you know, like things out of mm-hmm. far reaches of the universe. But we are going to be launching stuff from Great Britain, That's which good um, news, isn't it? <laughs> for the first time, and it's like. Um, yeah, uh, a peninsula in Scotland's North Highland coast has been identified as the site of what will be UK's first spaceport. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's in a peninsula called Armoine. I hope I've got that somewhere near, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's people online, like, <laughs> leaping on everybody who pronounces it wrong. But, like, <laughs> uh, that's, in, that's in Sutherland, which mm-hmm. I looked on the map just for we go up here, and it's right, right at the very, very top of Scotland. Oh, okay. um, in the flat, the kind of flat bit before it goes to the Orkneys and the, you know, the movie mm-hmm. on for, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and that's going to be um, that's going to be an operation within the next three years, um, and it's going to that's going to be vertical takeoff rockets going up there. Uh, two companies operating out of there: it's Lockheed and mm. another British company called Or. Or I'm going to get this right: Orbex, I think it was right. Again, get confused because mm. Virgin is called they're now called the Virgin Galactic has now become Virgin Orbit. Um, but yeah, the other company operating out of um, uh, Sutherland will be Orbex. Um, both of them be they're only going to be small rockets mm-hmm. not going to be massive like uh, you know the kind of thing satin fives nothing like that yeah. they're going to be tiniest but as all of them uh, Ariane um Considerably, yes. considerably small. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're going to be launching but, satellites, aren't they? Isn't yeah, it? that's exactly it for the moment. It's not. It's not. It's not the you know talk great exciting stuff, but it, it, it is exciting. Just think that we're taking those first steps into um, a, a kind of into a space economy, which hopefully will become massive in the future. Mm. You know, like mm. um, we're aiming. I think it's going to be some, oh, no, it's billions worldwide by nineteen. Mm. You know, mm. nineteen twenty thirty. So, mm. um, I, and it is exciting. And also, but apart from just that site. Um, uh, Almost definitely, we're going to be getting launches by Virgin Orbit um, from Newquay in Cornwall. Wow! Uh, but that's going to be a that's going to be a horizontal takeoffs using using a converted Boeing seven four seven. Oh a, yes, go faster! Red stripes painted on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Called Cosmic yeah. Girl. Yeah. Um, and uh, that that seems almost definite, almost definite as far as I can tell. I was just reading the uh, their website and the uh, the uh, yeah the. Uh, Cornish web, uh, spaceport website, and they seem pretty certain that that's going to happen. Mm. So, wow. um, and there's a couple of other contenders. My favourite one, although I must admit, reading them all seems to be the least likely this is going to happen. Is is one uh, near Campbelltown in Scotland again? Mm. And the reason the reason I like that one is because it's near the Mull of Kintyre. Oh, so nice. we can all redo the lyrics to Malakintyre, spaceships rolling in. Yeah, there's also yeah. Uh, Snowden is in the running as well. They're getting a, they're, um, 
Oh, the government. What should I say? The government is is is, is creating a development fund for all these places. Uh-huh. So the yeah, uh, in uh, County Gwynedd, where, uh, where Snowdonia is there, uh-huh. they're in the running as well. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's wow, all that's really exciting. exciting. So even yeah. even if only two of them ever work do work out, it's, we're still yeah. launching stuff. And it, I just cool. think it'll be a great tourist. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Thing as well. Yeah, I, yeah. I want to travel to these places and watch things take off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's something about, you know, the kind of uh, watching watching something just going, yeah. and you know, where it's going out, it's leaving the planet and going out, out to space. It's it's just an incredible yeah. thing to kind of watch, isn't and, it? And the only yeah. other thing that struck me is that like, looking at all of their artists' impressions of how they're going to develop these places is they're clearly all been influenced by Thunderbirds. Uh, <laughs> 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 I'd be surprised if yeah. all of them end up looking like those. <laughs> yeah. They've got a little like covers that open up and everything comes out for us. No, gen- genuinely, yeah. Subterranean it doesn't because they look, look like Tracy Island. You know? <laughs> yeah, but, brilliant. Uh, anyway, yeah. But you kind of wonder whether or not this is like something that can eventually be built upon. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not like a space flight expert or anything like that. You kind of wonder, is, is that is that then the potential if, if everything goes to plan and, and it becomes more developed to you know, to, to launch bigger rockets and, and kind of... Oh, I would hope mm, so, and I would mm. think everybody involved would hope so too. Mm. It, would, it would be nice to think that, you know, like, maybe yeah. Professor Quatermass's dream will one day come true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I, you, you'd think that's where it's going. These are like small steps and hopefully uh, 20, 20 years' time, 30 years' mm. time, we'll be actually... Doing proper great exciting. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it'll that's be really like, exciting, isn't it? An ESA speech or something. Yeah, yeah we've yeah. only got the skills. I mean, that's the thing. Absolutely. Our, you know, why, why should our people, all our technicians and people mm. with the knowledge, go overseas to do these things? Yeah, Keep I mean, it's one of the know? things that we really do well, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Kind of satellite technology in yeah. the UK is is forging ahead. I mean, you know, we've got a real, really strong. Um, technological base there, yeah. so it yeah. makes sense to kind of press ahead with it. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Because currently, all the well, the, the satellites that are made in the UK have to be shipped across to to be blasted off in other places. So yes. Gonna get yeah. Kind of... yeah. Yeah. Well, um, for me, I think um, I've been looking, just thinking back over some of the uh, practical astronomy highlights of 2018, and mm-hmm. slightly weird one. This one I'm going to I'm going to pick out was the. Um, the lunar eclipse of twenty twenty yeah. seventh of July because it, it was it was it was billed it, you know it looked like such a good event I mm-hmm. mean you know when you were looking at it in Stellarium and got your planetarium programs launching when I f- remember when I first saw what was going to happen my my jaw dropped dropped and I you know I had a kind of cold <laughs> tingle running up my spine because you know there was here was this lunar eclipse lunar eclipse. Uh, a, a blood moon rising yeah. from the horizon, already eclipsed, so it would be yeah. red as it as it rose. Mars was going to be six degrees, just six degrees from it, so really close by. You know, in to the naked eye, that would have been a beautiful, a beautiful apparition. Mm. And didn't we also um, work out because we're, we're based in Bristol here? Didn't yeah. we? We worked out that we'd be able to see it from the Clifton Suspension Bridge. Yes, yes, we would be able to look down from the Clifton Observatory and have a view of the Clifton Suspension Bridge, the the, the nice hill behind it with the fields behind, and then the moon rising up mm. behind that, which would have just been jaw dropping. What happened? 
Cloud. <laughs> what always happens. Of course, it was clouded out. You know, and, and so our hopes were dashed, and we had to we had to um, satisfy our logging for um, for those sites from you know photos from but around the world. It wasn't even just yeah. the fact that it was clouds; it was the fact that it had been cloudless for like weeks beforehand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. It, they just yeah, yeah. arrived just for yeah, that. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it was like that. I mean, we had a really good summer this mm. year, didn't we? We had an awesome summer. Loads of clear nights. Loads of really hot nights as well. Which is great. You can go out with a t-shirt at night with a pair of binoculars or a telescope and 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 do some stargazing. Um, but yes, it, it wasn't to be. We were we were thwarted. Um, <laughs> our hopes were cruelly dashed uh, by by the British weather. Did anywhere um, in the UK actually have a gap in the clouds? Gap in the clouds. Well, I think like. there was some. There was some um, people that got lucky and they, they maybe had a fleeting glimpse of it. You know, <laughs> yeah. through some through some high altitude haze. <laughs> you know, I seem to remember we got some pretty good um, images sent in by readers and and. Yeah. and, and Quite a few of them were from the UK, so I think yeah. some people did. Yeah. Some people, some people got really lucky, just but local, you know, very local kind of gaps in the clouds. Um, but the other thing, Mars, you know, um, we talked about Mars. Mars was Mars was in part of that um, lunar eclipse, but Mars was at, also at opposition on the twenty seventh of July, and it was a um, it was a what's known as a perihelic opposition when um, Mars is is at its brightest and best. Um, in the sky, the best time to see it for, you know, for a year or year and a half, I think they come round. Um, and um, this particular eclipse was when Mars was closest to to Earth, um, and that's quite has quite an effect on how Mars looks to the naked eye because yeah. um, the difference between when Mars is closest to, closest to us at opposition and when it's furthest away. It's about double the size, so you really, it was really, really bright. Uh, it would have been really, really bright, um, and people were, you know, looking forward to seeing quite a bit of detail on it and stuff. But there was, of course, Mars has its own weather weather problems, and there was a huge planet wide dust storm, mm. and so it knocked out all the detail that could be seen. It went on um, for, that went on for months. Went on for months and months, and actually. Um, uh, NASA is still having problems with um, opportunity um, because it relies on solar power. Uh, it put itself into hibernation when it, when the power went down from its solar panels, and NASA still hasn't regained contact um, with it. Although it does know where it is, it's managed to see it in in um, some satellite photos from <laughs> Mars. Um, it still hasn't. It still just can't can't um, uh, communicate with it yet. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, perhaps not the not the um, not the best. Two great events in 2018, perhaps not the best, but you know we do have a comet Wurzen and is is getting higher and higher in the sky this year. So perhaps there might be something to look forward to, um, you know, as as the year draws to a close. And going back to Mars, I think um, Dave, you talked to someone about Mars recently, didn't you? Yeah. Well, one of the other features in the uh, in the current issue is is um, about uh, how you can give your um, your images of Mars much more scientific value. Um, you know, they, they don't have to be pretty. They don't, you don't just have to send them in to us so we can admire them. Um, there are scientists out there who will actually want to look at your images and get proper scientific value out of them. Um, and Dr. Dr. Richard McKim, uh, the British Astronomical Association, uh, the Mars Division, uh, yeah, I had a chat with him about uh, how you can actually make your, your photographs of more scientific value. Well, my name is Richard McKim, and I'm the director of the Mars section of the British Astronomical Association, which is a body that collects and am- analyzes amateur observations of Mars. And how long have you been in that role? Well, I've been in that ro- role a long time, over two decades now. 
so I followed Mars for a long period of time and seen many spacecraft come and go, but the amateur fraternity is still there out in their backyards getting observations and images. So were you actually um, actively interested in Mars beforehand or was it a role that you fell into and now it's just something you, you, you love because it's your life? I've always liked amateur astronomy, and I always noticed that there were more books about Mars than any other planet. Um, So it must have something of interest. Uh, And of course, there's a lot of science fiction about Mars, which is another hobby of mine. So it was an ideal planet, really, to study. It's a frustrating planet to observe in many ways, but a great challenge to the observer. (laughs) And why do you say frustrating? It's frustrating because Mars is often a very, very small object in the telescope. When it's close to the Earth, it can be really still quite small for the amateur astronomer to see. Some oppositions are very much better than others because Mars has an elliptical orbit. So sometimes it's quite close to the Earth and sometimes it can be quite far away. And those times make it really very frustrating to observe. Yeah, because its apparent apparent size is the biggest variation of any of the planets, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Really, really massive variation. And um, so, so we're specifically talking about the. There's, there's a feature in our latest issue about um, imaging Mars for science and how um, amateur photographers can actually be involved with this. So, how can they be? I and mean, what are you looking for? Well, we're looking for good quality work. Um, the, the, the quality of images that amateurs can get with, say, a um, 25 centimeter, 10 inch telescope these days, um, the detail that is recorded in those electronic images, thanks to the sensitivity and wide availability of CCD cameras, is much greater than would have been obtained with the planetary photographs that were taken with the 200-inch on Mount Palomar back in the 1950s when they were commissioning that telescope. So we can get high-quality data with backyard telescopes, which can be put to scientific use. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but obviously you said you've been in this role for a long time, so you must have seen some great advances in the actual images that you're getting. Absolutely. When I started this particular role, the first um, time that I analysed observations of Mars was back in 1980, and almost all of the material consisted of drawings. Uh, then we had photographs, then we had better photographs due to a um, revolution in the way that certain films were made and treated, and then we had the CCD camera, and then we had the, the web camera, and then we had the software for the web camera. So over the years, I've seen Um, rather blurry um, shots of something that might have been anything um, to images that were, as I say, really much better than the world's largest telescope back in the days when film was used. So I've seen tremendous changes over the years. But how how, um, specifically can these amateur observations help science? I mean, um, you would have thought that the layman would have just thought that, uh, you know, that all the big professional telescopes out there get all the information you need. So what, what are these contributing? Well, of course, a lot of professional telescopes aren't directed towards Mars. They're directed towards deep sky objects. But amateur observations are useful in that they provide a continual level of coverage. Until quite recently, spacecraft around Mars and to Mars were quite occasional, and we didn't get that consistent and continual coverage. So lots of events, Martian atmospheric events like dust storms, for example, would have been missed by a lot of of the spacecraft that went there. 
Uh, another point is that um, some of the spacecraft that have taken images of Mars have taken images just at a certain time in the Martian day, and they've missed phenomena in the early morning, which amateur astronomers have have covered. So the, the great thing that we've got is a very um, large round-the-clock um, watch on Mars, which does display unusual phenomena from time to time. So we've caught a lot of things that have been missed by uh, professional um, astronomers and even by spacecraft that have been in orbit around the planet. Can you think of anything specifically? Well, there was one very unusual phenomenon back in 2012 where um, the spacecraft's images at the time were taking images in the afternoon. And amateur astronomers observed um, a very unusual phenomenon um, in that year, which consisted of a very high-level cloud, which was seen at the morning terminator. And you can think that when you look into the sunset sky, uh, you often see very high clouds are lit up underneath by the sun long after the sun has set. And that's on account of their very high altitude. And with Mars in 2012, we had a series of these phenomena seen at the, as I say, at the morning terminator, which were unobservable by the spacecraft due to the routines that they had. And what was very unusual about these clouds, we've seen many clouds on Mars before. Um, we've seen most of the clouds tend to be at fairly low altitudes. Some are dust storms, some are white clouds, and we're talking about a few tens of kilometers. But this particular one, when we measured the images, had altitudes of 200 to 250 kilometers. So these were technically clouds that were outside the normal normal atmosphere of the planet, and there must have been some connection with Martian aurorae. So they're very unusual, they're very temporary phenomena, and they were completely missed by spacecraft. Excellent. That's an excellent, uh, you know, example of how how, how this kind of amateur um, uh, science can, can lead to something quite exciting. Absolutely. And um, what are the best practices for people who want to submit photos? What, what should they um, try and make sure they do? Well, I think the most important thing is to get to tick all the boxes with the data. Um, there's nothing more frustrating than getting um, an image from somebody who's put the date on and not the time, or used a different time system, or used an American time system. Uh, it's it's best to use universal time, which begins at midnight and goes through to midnight the next day. So that's very important to get that system right. We want to know the size of the telescope. We want to know what sort of camera the person is using, because some cameras are excellent for astronomy, and some of them don't have the um, high sensitivity across the whole range of visible wavelengths. Some of them, for example, aren't very receptive to blue light, which is very important in observing Mars. So we want to know what sort of camera it is, telescope, um, what sort of conditions, and sometimes it would be quite useful to know to what extent the image has been processed, because a lot of images um, uh, need to be processed to bring out the, the best details in them. Absolutely, yeah. And you, you like the, the, all that information actually included on the, uh, on the image itself, don't you? It, it's useful if it can be, although when, when you're in contact with a new observer, they normally introduce themselves and give some of that information at the beginning. But um, at some point, we'd like to have some, some record of that information so it's not, not lost to posterity. Sometimes we come back to images to analyse them several years or even decades later. And if that information isn't readily to hand, that image is effectively lost to science. Mm, exactly, yeah. And um, how, how do people actually submit their, um, their images? They send them electronically. Um, there, there are several uh, organisations in the world that allow you to upload 
images to websites where they can be looked at by amateur and professional astronomers. Professionals now take a great interest in these high-resolution images, um, and I'm very happy to have them emailed to myself. We also have within the British Astronomical Association, we have our own members pages, so members can also uh, put their, their images up onto their own personal web pages. But I really do prefer if people send them directly to me because I'm just an ordinary person with a, a limited amount of spare time, and it's better if I receive them rather than go hunting for them on the internet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And uh, your email is? Richard McKim at btinternet.com. Okay, good. Thank you very much. And uh, how many submissions do you get a week and how many could you handle? Well, um, when I've had um, some really close perihelic oppositions, and the, the best one was 2003 when Mars was closest, um, the closest it had been for the, in, in recorded history, in all of recorded human history, we had over 250 observers. And many of these were observing once every few nights. So uh, as you can imagine, I was getting quite a lot of, um, of email at that time. Uh, at the moment, Mars was in opposition this summer. It's not so well placed from the UK, so maybe only one or two images per day at the moment. So it does vary quite a lot. But there's, there's still a steady trickle, isn't it? That's good. Oh, absolutely, yes, because although Mars is getting small, um, there are people with telescopes there who can make the observations, and there are people um, throughout the world. We've got a worldwide network of observers from people who make observations um, in the Southern Hemisphere whose contributions are always very useful. And is there something that you'd like to discover? Is there, is there, is there, is there something in your head that you think, oh, I wish that something one day would reveal that about Mars? Well, it's always nice to make individual personal discoveries. Um, I tend to make discoveries upon other people's images because they show a lot more um, than I can see visually. I've been a visual observer. I've always been interested in, in art, sketching, painting, that sort of thing on an amateur basis. So that's something I do for another hobby. And I tend to make drawings of Mars at the telescope. Um, but uh, I, I, I certainly make a great deal of use and discover things on the images sent by other people. I think one of the most important things that we do is to maintain a long-term coverage. And some of the discoveries one can make with a long-term research are probably more important than some of the, um, if you like, temporary features that we might see that last for just a couple of days on the planet. Yeah, because obviously that's another uh, advantage of the way that you know, these things are being submitted, is it allows you to, to study trends as well as individual that's images. Well, that's absolutely right. And one thing that we have done, something I've done a lot of work on, is measuring the size of the polar caps of the planet. Now, these show regular seasonal cycles like the like the Earth. Um, of course, Mars is in a way a sort of laboratory planet because it hasn't got um, humans interfering with it. It hasn't got oceans and that sort of thing. Um, and what's been very interesting is to measure the speed at which the polar caps evaporate in the Martian summer. And if you, if you take the best data from 2003, for example, and you compare them with some good historical data and the, probably the best uh, historical year we'd have in the past would be 1956 when there was a worldwide um, campaign to observe it. If you compare the, the curves which show the latitude or the size of the Martian polar cap as a function of time, you'll find that those two curves are identical. So um, during the last half century, the polar caps on Mars have shown absolutely no systematic um, 
change at all. There are random changes from year to year due to um, dust storm activity, but there's been no long-term change, and therefore one can infer from that that any um, any changes that we might have noticed in our own Earth environment are due to us. Excellent. And um, final question now. Uh, there's obviously um, this massive dust storm that, that covered Mars for most of uh, this year, um, or a lot of this year. Um, did any did uh, any of the contributions reveal anything interesting about that? Um, they do. What was very unusual about that particular event was that it began in the northern hemisphere of the planet. And although we have had um, many of these phenomena to study in the past, almost all of them have begun in the south, where the wind speed is higher, the temperature is higher. This one was really quite unusual in beginning in, in, in the northern hemisphere of the planet. In fact, it was probably more than one event that caused the, the planet to have a, a planet encircling dust storm this year. Uh, it also occurred pretty early um, in the Martian year. There are certain times these storms can begin and grow large. If they start too early in the year, they don't grow fast enough. They don't encircle the planet. If they start too late uh, for a similar reason. Uh, so this began right at the, the start of the, uh, the earliest possible moment in the southern hemisphere dust storm season, except that it began in the north. Hmm. And I'm sure I'm sure these things are planned uh, to annoy amateur <laughs> astronomers. The same thing happened back in 2001. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's as the weather, the weather on Mars is, uh, is as bad as the weather here in England. Uh, yes, um, I'm, I'm sure it is. It's probably a little bit more predictable. Although I'm not sure about that. Ours is always pretty pretty poor, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, thank you very much. It's been very interesting. Thanks for talking to us. It was a great pleasure to speak to you. Thanks very much for inviting me. That was Dr Richard McKim of the British Astronomical Association. You can find out more about how you can help further the science being done on Mars with your own observations in the December issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. And there's lots to see in the night sky this month, which you can find out all about in our guide to the night sky in the magazine. But if there's one night you should circle on your calendar for some observing in December, it's the night of the 13th and 14th, which is the peak of the Geminid meteor shower. Now this is up there with the Perseids as one of the big annual meteor showers and it's usually one of the stronger showers in terms of activity. Now, the way strength of meteor showers is compared is by using a theoretical figure called the zenithal hourly rate, or ZHR, and that figure for the Geminids is 120. The Perseids in summer is just 100, by the way. Now, the ZHR is an ideal number of meteors you'd see in an hour if your sky was completely clear, it was perfectly dark, the shower was overhead, and you had the omnipresence to see in all directions. And the actual visual weight rate, or AVR, is almost always less. And for the Geminids, it'll probably be something more like 50 meteors an hour. The peak of the Geminids is on the night of the 13th and 14th, when Gemini, the constellation that this shower appears to come from, will be relatively high in the east by 9 or 10 o'clock. So wrap up warm, grab a sun lounger and a blanket, and look about two-thirds of the way up to directly overhead from the horizon. And get counting, see how many meteors you can spot. The moon sets just before 10pm, so the rest of the night will be nice and dark for a good spot of meteor watching. That's it from us this month. You can find out more about making your observations of Mars science worthy in the December issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. 
where we also look forward to the best observing in 2019, get an expert eye on creating 360-degree panoramas of the night sky, and cover some of Spain's darkest sites to go and escape the cold in. And don't forget our regular sections, which will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.